welcome to episode 17 of the Different Doctor, Same Old Shit podcast. Each week we watch a story based on Doctor Order and dissect it. I'm Mo from France, and to my west, it's the ever-delightful, ever-delicious Doctor L. How you doing, Doc? <clears throat> I'm fine. Um, obviously, in this project, I'm uh, considerably uh, less loquescent um, than, hmm. than, uh, than I am in the other one. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, in, in, in fact, I'm probably only like one ninth as loquacious, which is how come I, 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 I presume I'm, I'm, I'm Doctor L instead of uh, the uh, the full handle which goes in me. But yeah, so I mean, um, this has been a chance for me to sort of catch up with the Ark in Space, which is a story I haven't watched for a really long time. But we'll we'll we'll, we'll get onto that in due course. We'll get um, onto that. What's been happening in your life, Doc? Oddly. Um, Chafing under the continuance of restrictions due to coronavirus mm-hmm. in a way that I didn't actually feel myself chafing when it actually seemed like it was a real crisis. So, um, so what, what are the restrictions that you, that you feel are, are bothering your life at the moment, Doc? Um, there's a, a couple of important pieces of travel that I could really, really do with doing at the moment. Um, it's not important like what they are and yeah. where they are to, um, but just because ambitious international travel is borderline impossible yeah so we're talking we're talking foreign travel here yes we are yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. because i think i think internal travel is no problem anymore i've just spent the weekend in 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 sunny wales as confirmation and you know no no problems um no restrictions really at all of note so yeah i was just curious so so you're talking uh, international flight Pretty much, yes. Yeah. Um, it's um, it's been interesting for me to sort of do a little exercise in psychology on myself, and I have honestly no idea whether um, I'm sort of chafing now because um, whether it's whether I'm chafing now because it seems less like a crisis than it did, and mm. the continuance of restrictions sort of seems increasingly arbitrary, mm-hmm. um, or whether I've just sort of come up against my 18-month going on two years limit of not having done any of this stuff. Sure. Um, which is quite a long time for me to have not done something like that. And yeah. it's... Um, without to put, Not to put too fine a point on it, getting bored. Yeah, I mean, of course, you know, with my moniker, Mo from France, as you can imagine, you know, my, my craving to return... To return to Gaul is getting uh, stronger by the day, but but you know, I'm kind of encountering the same problem, Doc. You know, the the obstacles in the way. Whilst it is possible, I think it just makes it seem unappealing somehow. Would it be? Would the obstacles to overcome just actually make the whole thing massively less enjoyable than than enjoyable? I think so. You know, just you know, just the the, the you know sticking things up your nostrils. Um, you know, the, the you know mask wearing, um, quarantining when you get there—it's just too much, Doc. Too much, too much for poor Mo to take. <laughs> so instead, what I've done today is I've had to I've had to bathe a particularly uncooperative West Highland Terrier, Doc. Have you ever done such a thing? Um. I have, in fact, participated in the bathing of a particularly uncooperative West Highland Terrier. Really? A, West, a Westie as well? Yes, a little white one. 
That's brilliant. Yeah, uh, I, 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 I suspected maybe you know you bathed the dog, but the the, the chances of it being a Westie as well, but that's astonishing. Yeah, and they are spectacularly uncooperative, aren't they? <laughs> well, I mean, I think terriers in general just do not like water, you know, and, and when that water's kind of blasting out of a shower head, <laughs> they are particularly unappreciative, I think. Um, yeah, yeah, oh, the beautiful, beautiful temperament normally, this, 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 this wonderful creature, but no, well, no, he does not want to bathe. But here's the thing, Doc, if he doesn't want to have a bath... Best not rolling fuck shit, you know? <laughs> Let that be a lesson to you, my friend. <laughs> Understand, doggy. You have the freedom, you have the entitlement to roll yeah. in fox shit. The consequences of this is bath. Exactly, you know. Hopefully you'll figure it out one of these days. Um, corrections, Doc. What, is this really a correction? Or maybe it's just some extra information. I can't remember why, but last time we were talking about the sun. And I, I was kind of uh, speculating about the circulation and the reach of the sun. Uh, the newspaper yeah. I'm talking about, of course. Um, so I went and got some, some figures. Now, disappointingly, it doesn't seem possible to find out how many physical copies they sell anymore. Um I, I, I don't know if they're hiding that number because maybe it is, you know, such a paltry figure. Um, but what we can see are the monthly reach figures. Now, the source of this comes from something called newsworks.org.uk, which seems very, very reputable. Um, and the date of this, this is the latest data that I could find, was the 25th of March of this year. So pretty recent, you know, really talking five, five months or so ago. Um, the reach, get this, Doc. Adults, 38,189,000. That number is astonishing to me. I've got some more. I've got some. Yeah, goodness. I mean, that, that was my sentiment exactly. I've got some more information here too. This comes from another website called uh, Statista.com, which again seems very reputable from what I could observe. Um, here's what they say The Sun. Again, this is, this is what well, it actually gives us a date, as, as I'm reading. So, the Sun had an average monthly reach of around 38 mil million adults in Great Britain from April 2019 to March 2020. The print and digital reach of the Sun and the Sun on Sunday was higher among women than men, with over 20 million women a month reached by the Sun or its website on average. Reach was also significantly higher amongst older consumers, with roughly 26 million in the over 35 years age group, accessing the sun each month. 26 million British people over 35 read the sun each month. I'm astonished, Doc. I'm also, frankly, fucking terrified. But there we go. Yeah, I mean, uh, terrified, ashamed, yeah. Um, upset, yeah. bashed. Um, <coughs> I... I I would make a witty jape about um, how the UK was supposed to be one of the first countries in the world to establish very widespread literacy. And sure. what have we done with it? <laughs> Absolutely. We've pissed it down the drain, unfortunately. Um, that's it for corrections, Doc. Unless you've got anything else to add, let's get into part one.
welcome to part one of the show, which we call TARDIS Talk. It's the topic of the week. Hey, guys. So, Doc, give us a number between one and four, if you would, my good man. Right. We're on. We're, we're doing the story from Doctor Number Four today, so I'm going Doc? to say number four. Oh, that's that's nice then. So, a two-parter, really. What is your earliest TV memory, and specifically, what is your earliest Doctor Who memory? But, but pretty back to basics here, Doc, for, for this week. Um, my earliest TV memory, um, I wouldn't. It, it's almost certain to be Play School. Uh-huh. Um, now. According to my mom, um, I was extremely uh, reluctant to. Uh, after I'd, I'd, I'd mastered, like, become the master of my own anal sphincter, um, <laughs> I was, I was extremely reluctant to relinquish the mastery of my anal sphincter, um, unless I was placed on a potty in front of play school. <laughs> Um, very good, very good. Yeah, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> that's, that's a, what an image doc you've conjured there. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that would have um, that would definitely have been my uh, my earliest TV. If I had to put a, a like identify what particular bit that was, mm. um, I'm pretty sure it would have had Derek Griffiths in it, mm-hmm. and I'm pretty sure that Derek Griffiths. Um, would have been playing his guitar and singing a song about animal behaviour. Sure. Uh-huh. Derek Griffiths. Now, I know the name. He's the, um, he's the black guy, isn't he, from Play School? Yeah, I know that very, uh, sounds a bit reductive, but, but there was only one black presenter, I think. So that's the fella, isn't it? His, his, his thing was to um, have a guitar um, yeah. and... I suppose, uh, very much as Bill Bailey does now, mate. He, sure. He, ah. he, he would... Uh, Improvise in a narrative fashion um, a song around the subject of the day, which was frequently animal behaviour. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> brilliant. Yeah, so play school. How old do you reckon you'd have been then? Two. That's really, really impressive to remember something that, you know, for, for, from such a young age. Um, yeah, that, 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 that's, that's remarkable, actually. My earliest Doctor Who memory. Yeah. Um, and um, I have tied this down, I think, fair and square to The Invisible Enemy, episode three. Uh-huh. Um, and what the memory consists of is... Um, <laughs> I'm not making this up. This is actually a, a genuine thing that I remember. Tom Baker running down a corridor. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, for younger viewers... In in our day, one of the cliches about Graham Williams era Doctor Who was that um, it consisted of protracted sequences of Tom Baker running up and down corridors. Mm-hmm. You're uh, talking about, but, um, it, you know, the the, the, the most egregious example of that is is it episode four in Invasion of Time? Well, I think it's episode. Yeah, I, I think it is episode four, episode five of the Invasion yeah. of Time, except. Yeah. Those corridors are on location, and it's actually in a terrifying, disused mental hospital. Yeah, because the, the, the corridors in question do not look like the TARDIS corridors at all, do they? Because they're red brick work, basically. Um, yeah, and they don't so much not look like TARDIS corridors, but they very much do look like a disused mental hospital. Mm-hmm. There's, one where, um, there's one bit where the Doctor um, runs past an alcove with a tattered green curtain uh, hanging up on the outside Mm. peeps inside. And there's a brief glimpse of like a a, a chair covered in restraints with wires coming off it. (laughs) Um, 
and uh, obviously it was the um, the director having a joke about the fact that you know the, uh, the doctor would clearly choose to live in a madhouse given mm. the choice. Mm. Again, that's you know that, 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 that it's an impressive early memory because that would be what are we talking there, Doc? You know, like 77, 78, something around that mark. Around that mark, yes. But my earliest memories of TV are nowhere near as um, as, as early as yours. Um, I mean, I, th- I think the first thing I can, you know, really positively and distinctly remember watching on TV was the Queen video to the song Radio Gaga. Um, yeah. Now, if I'm if, if my dates are correct. I think that, 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 that song was released in 1981. And that would have made me, depending on the time of year, that would have either made me five or six years old. Um, so, you know, not even close to your, you know, your memory from the age of two. Um, but, but you can now legitimately say, uh, if you want to be a real hipster, if anyone mm. ever asks you what the first movie you ever saw was, you can say it was uh, Fritz Lang's Metropolis. Metropolis, of course, yeah, because it features heavily, doesn't <laughs> it, in that video. You're quite right. Yeah. And that's a really good point. Um, and, <clears throat> I mean, Doctor Who specific memory? Yeah. I'm going for... Now, this is, this is a strange one, because the story that I'm about to reference was broadcast before I was born. So this must have been a repeat. Now I'm wondering, Doc, if you know, if you know these dates, because you're pretty, you're pretty good on the, this, this kind of stuff normally. The story itself was the three doctors. And I know it was the three doctors because I really have a distinct memory of the sequence where the, I can't remember what, like the, I can't remember what the, like the blobby aliens are called in the three doctors. Off the top They're of the gel guards, gel guards. Thank you, sir. Um, and it's the sequence where they kind of start to materialize outside what looks like a, a university building or something like that, or an old library, yeah. something like that. That's right. Um, yeah. And <clears throat> I, you know, I mean, that, that, that burnt into my into my memory at the time. You know what? What on earth is this? I think it scared me shitless, to be honest. Um, which is probably why I remember it so distinctly. But it's it, it, you know. Even if it scared me, it certainly intrigued me, you know. So, yeah, that, that's my earliest, um, my earliest two memory. So, when um, do you reckon that was, Doc? Uh, that, that would have been repeated as part of what would... It wasn't really a season. It was referred to as the five faces of Doctor Who season. And oh. it was the... Um, it, was between, it was between seasons 19 and 20. So, basically, it was the summer run-up to the broadcast of The Five Doctors mm-hmm. um, in November 1983 for the 20th anniversary. Oh, so, I mean, no, so I would have been eight years old. Isn't it astonishing that that's my, you know, my, my earliest Who memory? Because I'm pretty sure we were a, we were a Doctor Who watching family. You know, certainly my, certainly my dad liked his sci-fi and he liked his football so you know i'm pretty sure he'd have been watching grandstand and left the left it on bbc one for who um so yeah it, it, it seems strange that that's my earliest memory but but there it is doc you know, ah, I think... but ah but um if you were a uh, if you're a science fiction family as opposed to a doctor who specific family yeah um uh your family may have defected to buck rogers during mm. season 18 Oh, is um, possible? Yes, I do remember seeing a bit of Book Rogers from time to time. Yeah, so um, 
ITV deli- uh, sort of uh, after paying a ton of money to acquire it, they, mm. they deliberately scheduled it opposite season eighteen, um, and then of course by season nineteen, um, it was on Wednesday. It was on Thursday and Friday nights. Was it really? I didn't know this. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it was on weekday nights. So Peter David, so the, the, Peter Davidson's first two seasons were were broadcast on on the evenings of of, of a weeknight. Yeah, all three of them. All I'm three at, of the seasons were. I'm astonished by this. This is brand new information to me. Yeah. Um, I mean, that when when you watched, when you were consciously watching Doctor Who, knowing what it was, mm. so um, from your guests, like um, from Arc of Infinity onwards. Sure. Um, those first two seasons of Doctor Who that you saw consciously, you would have seen on, on weekday evenings. Well, blow me down. Knock me over with a feather, Doc. That's, that's absolutely astonishing. How about that? We live and learn, don't we? So, I mean, that brings me on to, uh, and it's, it's, it's something we've touched on before. Um, and I think it's a point that bears can't really be stated too often. Um, you've already mentioned the sun and the yeah. demographics of the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, families who read the sun, one would imagine, um, based on what one generally understands about the class politics of the UK, to have been ITV families. I would yes, say. I would say so. I would, I would tend to agree with that. Fascinated to know, and I expect there's textbooks available which, which, which will help me with this. I don't know if I've settled into this prejudicial way of thinking um, since, well, basically because for a very long time, or for, for most of my adult life, The Sun has been owned by Rupert Murdoch, mm-hmm. um, who is obviously very well known for hating the BBC and anything to do with it. Sure. Um, but I mean, my my image of um, families uh, families who bought the Daily Mirror would probably have watched the BBC, and families that bought the Sun would probably have watched well um, just about everything on Saturday evenings and Sundays on ITV would have been made and broadcast by LWT in those days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and it sort of aped the BBC pattern very very carefully. So. Um, you had a long-form kids' programme on Saturday mornings. You had a long-form sports programme on Saturday afternoons. Um, you had news and sports results. Um, and then you went into, like, the long variety slog yeah. um, of Saturday evening. Sure. Um, so here's a question. After the variety slog, um, at 11 o'clock on, the, on BBC One, you always had match of the day. Okay. Um, which, um, once again, I need to check this because I have clear memories of that being like the highlights of a whole entire complete match and not Mm. the creature which it is today, which is a bunch of edited highlights. That's Um, a really good question. Yeah. Um, I think what they would do, um, is to broadcast, they'd basically get the 90 minutes of a whole entire division one match. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, into or it might actually have run for an hour and a half. They might actually have showed the whole entire game. Um, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty sure they didn't show the whole match, but I think you might. I think you're. I think you may well be correct that when it first started was the highlights of one particular, and it, and that makes sense of the title. It doesn't match of the day. That's yes. singular. It makes total <laughs> sense, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, and I think there was. I believe there was at least some effort put into the editorial that they would 
obviously in those days the BBC couldn't do an OB at all 13 Division One football matches that were taking place all around the country. Yeah. Um, but they would make an effort to do the OB from the one that seemed like it would promise to be the game you'd really want to go to that week. Sure, of course. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, if it's and one of those things that sort of reminds you just how much the cultural landscape of the whole entire country has changed, because um, I was struggling to think then, off the top of my head, without references, who were the big players in football in those days, in mm. 1978, 1979? Mm. Um, and, you know, I mean, I remember the match of the day um, you know, <clears throat> the best game of football you will see this week um, being Wolverhampton Wanderers and Nottingham Forest. Sure, yeah, yeah. I think I think Liverpool were knocking around in the, like in the late seventies. I think they, you know, I yeah. think they were, you know, uh, you know, they, they, they were, you know, really, really strong at that particular point in time. But certainly, you know, what we think of as like the big four, you know, currently, you know, you know, like your Man City, Chelsea, Liverpool, and probably Man United. No, no, I don't. I, with the exception of Liverpool, I don't think the others were particularly strong at all. I don't remember even being aware of Manchester City or Chelsea. Mm. In those, mm. um, I was aware of Manchester United. I was aware of Arsenal. Yeah. Um, I was aware of West Ham. Um, but I, I don't even remember like Chelsea and Manchester City being on my football radar well, when, no, but when, when I was talking. Well, I think Man, I think Man City certainly. You know, the, 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 they played in the bottom bottom league for for, for 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 a considerable period of time. So it could well be, you mm. know, that they, they were they were back in the old League Four, um, and and I think Chelsea certainly weren't in the top flight. Um, so it, it is interesting how these things change. Um, Doc, I don't think we want to bother our, our listeners with too much football talk. What do you reckon? Um, not too much football talk, but. Um, as a sort of segue into um, a big chunk of what we're going to talk about this evening, yeah. um, I just wanted to, to raise the spectre, if you like, of um, changing cultural landscapes. Sure. And what year? What what year are we in? What 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 actual chronological year are we in this week? We're in the year nineteen seventy-five, I believe. Correct. Yeah, you're the start of January into February, I believe. Yeah. So. Um, because that happens to be within my lifetime, uh-huh. that doesn't seem very long ago to yeah. me. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I was speaking to one of my co-workers um, this afternoon um, who wasn't born in the year 2000. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, for someone like that, who obviously is a grown adult with a driving license and permission to buy booze in a pub, and have sex mm. uh, and vote. Um, 1975 must seem as long ago as World War II seems to me. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I think I think you're quite right about that. We're going to be talking a lot about the cultural landscape of the UK in 1975 versus now because uh, mm. it, it, I, I think it's going to be very relevant to this this this, this episode of um, of this project. And I just thought it was. Uh, a good way to set the scene for that going in. I like it, Duck. I like it, Duck. I think we're getting perilously close to, to talking five rounds rapid, so let's dive in, shall we? Jenkins? Yeah. Up for the wings there. Five rounds rapid. Well, 
welcome to part two of the show, which is five rounds rapid. Here, me and the doc are just going to make two or three points each, which we're going to try our best to talk about as briefly as possible. Before that, though, some details, of course. Um, today's story is The Ark in Space, Tom Baker's second story, uh, written by Robert Holmes, with an uncredited writing assistance from John Lucarotti. Were you aware of this, Doc? I was not. No, no, no I mean, the, the, my source is Wikipedia, so, you know, make of that what you will. Um, do you know this man's name? Because I didn't. Um, I knew him only as the guy who wrote the Aztecs. Yeah, that's right. So he wrote the Aztecs, he wrote uh, Marco Polo, apparently, and he also wrote The Massacre. Open brackets of St. Bartholomew's Eve, close brackets. Um, so, yeah, so, you know, he's, he's written three historicals, basically. But, yeah, according to yeah. Wikipedia, Doc, he, 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 he assisted with the writing of the Ark in Space. I can find no further proof of this, but I thought it was worth mentioning as, as a curio. Director here is Rodney Bennett. Uh, spot quiz, Doc, you know the other two um, Doctor Who stories that this man directed? Um, I feel like saying the Mask of Mandragora. Very good. Um, and I feel like um, an absolute stinker as well, like Underworld or something like that. Mm, no, it's 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 the same season as Ark in Space. It's Sontaran Experiment. Um, so okay, so that makes perfect sense because um, now that you said it, um, the Ark in Space and the Sontaran Experiment were produced as a single six-parter with the Sontaran experiment having the location component and the Ark in Space having the studio component. Oh, very good. Very good. Good knowledge there, Doc. He, 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 also, he, I mean, his, his other big uh, directing job was on um, uh, uh, David Jason's Shipfest Darling Buds of May. So there we go. Um, <laughs> um, music, of course, by the inimitable and almost ubiquitous, I think, during this period, uh, Dudley Simpson. Come on, then, oh, Dudley Dudley. Deadly Dudley. Yeah, Deadly Dudley. He's back again. Um, go on, the Doc. Hit, hit me with your first point. Well, since we're, we're, we're now into, like, story two, we're, we're, we're going through the story twos, mm -hmm. um, we had paused to sort of stop and think a little while ago um, that the Daleks is where Doctor Who really starts now, isn't it? Sure. And um, in contrast... In Power of the Daleks, the trap near is uh, arrives perfectly formed. Mm -hmm. In Spearhead from Space, the Pertwee era and the 70s and the Unit era and Colour and all of that stuff all arrives so perfectly formed that it's almost alarming. Yes, it, it's very, very um, strange, isn't it? Just how they get that right so quickly. It, 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 yes. Nothing but impressive. Um, so part of me wants to say the Ark in Space is where the Tom Baker era really starts. Mm. Um, and I'm going to stick by that statement 70%. I, I, I think we said when we did Robot that the Tom Baker era hasn't really started yet. Um, it's it's only a John, it, it's it, it's really a final season John Pertwee story with a different man at the front, isn't it? Sure, yeah, yeah. I mean, it kind of feels like um, I don't know, like a, like a knockoff video game. You know, the, you know, it's like a Mario knockoff where, where Mario's just been kind of reskinned, so it, so it looks like a different character, effectively. Precisely, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, you could have you could have sandwiched that story in between um, Invasion of the Dinosaurs and Spearhead mm. uh, and um, 
prior to the spiders and, and it wouldn't have looked remotely out of place. No, you're right. And, and it's got all the components, hasn't it? You know, it's got it's got unit. It's earthbound, you know, um, whereas here suddenly units are gone and we're, you know, we are firmly in alien territory. Yeah. Um, and um, all of a sudden, I mean, once again, with a sort of spearhead from space kind of completeness, mm. all of the components, many of which would survive for the next seven years, mm. all, of, all of the components are there. Yeah. Um, I mean, um, I don't know how much of this is Rodney Bennett, and I don't know how much of it is Tom Baker, mm-hmm. but Tom Baker is at the front and centre of every single scene he appears in. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, he's suddenly a massively dominating presence. Um, did you notice, by the way, um, how much of his dialogue is in soliloquy? As in, so, so, a soliloquy is like a, a monologue, effectively, isn't it? Um, yeah, so I mean, the, um, the classic one is um, to be or not to be, where um, a character reveals their innermost thoughts by addressing the audience directly. Sure, sure. Yeah, no, I didn't um, notice it. I didn't notice it, but, but you feel that the Doctor here is is kind of verbalising his inner worries, you know, directly, almost like smashing the fourth wall. Is that what you're talking about? Um, yeah, and uh, I mean, there's... There's a bit in episode one that can't be referred to anything other than breaking the fourth wall. Mm. Um, it's when the discovers the hibernation chambers for the humans sure. for the first time. Mm-hmm. There's nobody else in the room with him, and he 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 addresses the camera directly and yeah. goes on his 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 ex, his his exposition about the, the the indomitability of the human spirit. Oh, you're right. Yeah, yeah, very yeah. We have good points. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, was um, it a deliberate choice? Do you think? Kind of the involvement of John Lucarotti suddenly mm. makes a lot more sense because that grounds it a lot more in Doctor Who's theatrical roots or Doctor Who's in the roots of Doctor Who in the roots of the BBC as theatre but on uh, but in your living room because it, the, the, that technique is certainly not something that we associate with Robert Holmes's writing is it surely um, well no I mean um, if you ask someone to rattle off three things they know about Robert Holmes. Um, one of the three things that I know about Robert Holmes will be the double act. Sure. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that everyone knows about Robert Holmes is that every single one of his stories um, has got um, two extremely likable characters who banter between themselves, and it's their banter that serves to move forward the plot. Do you not think in this particular story, though, that that, that role is taken up by Sarah and Harry? Um, well, Sarah and Harry... And there's Lysett and Rogan as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're like uh, amongst the first two humans. Um, but yeah, basically it's Sarah and Harry. Yeah. Um, now, we'll come back to this a bit later because this will stand a bit more going through as well. Sure. Um, can I, um, do you want to make point number two or shall I go on to my point number two? Uh, no, go on. Go on, Doc, you're on a bit of a roll. I'm really enjoying it. Right. Um, this is the point where Doctor Who gets nasty. Yeah. Um, this is, and this has to do with most obviously the fact that you've now got all the pieces on the board. Fundamentally, mm-hmm. you've got Tom Baker, Philip Inchcliffe, and Robert Holmes. Sure. Um, and this is the point at which, kind of, even though 
Philip Pinchcliffe gets remembered for these sort of Hammer-styled gothics, like mm. the Brain of Morbius that calls back to the Hammer Frankenstein from 1958. Um, it's obvious to me that Philip Pinchcliffe had had his eye on things like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and huh? The Hills Have Eyes um, and The Last House on the Left, because this is the point at which Doctor Who just decides it's going to get in your face and fucking offend you. Sure. Yeah. I mean, well, one of the points I've I've noted actually in, in, in my in my notes um, that I use for the episode, I've said great body horror throughout. Hinchcliffe really stamping his mark early on in his run. Colon, this is gonna get scary, basically. And and, yeah, and, so and that, that's how it seemed to me. You know, it's Hinchcliffe. You know, just you know, story two, turning up the horror lever. You know, um, almost, almost to max, really. Um, you know, the, the the body horror, the very notion of the Wirren. You know, their life cycle is. I, mean, I, I know that it's based on um, like a, an actual real animal, like a real insect, isn't it? Yeah. Um, like a parasitic wasp is a real thing. Um, but but you know, the the, the the way that it's the, the way that it's played out is. I mean, you know. For, for, for five thirty on a Saturday on a Saturday afternoon, it's pretty grisly stuff, Doc. Yeah. So, um, what examples of um, what is nowadays recognisably called body horror? Yeah. What examples were there in media um, before the story? I can mm -hmm. think of the thing, the Howard Hawks film, the original sure, one. Sure. Sure. Um, there's the Quatermass experiment, obviously. Mm hmm. Um, but. I mean, this, the fact that the the body horror, we, we, so um, I'm going to attempt to define what body horror is at the moment, and Go it's on. a subgenre of science fiction which is characterised not so much by the invasion of planets or the invasion of culture, but the invasion of self. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm, I'm also going to have to segue in, in, into my point number four here. I find it almost impossible I don't know how he could have done because I don't know what PBS schedules were like. I find it almost impossible that Dan O'Bannon um, didn't see the story on PBS um, in the US. Yeah, so with Dan Oh, sorry, Doc. Dan O'Bannon, you're talking. Uh, you're talking about Alien here, aren't you, Doc? Well, uh, like, yeah, and before that, Dark Star. So, oh, yes. if, if you take if you take Dark Star and you add the Ark in Space to it, you get Alien now, don't mm -hmm. you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, obviously, we, yeah, we, 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 I think I think it is off-sighted. Um, you know, the Ark in Space must have been must have been influential on Alien. I don't think it's ever been con confirmed. I don't think either Dan O'Bannon or Ridley Scott have actually acknowledged this as an influence. But it, it, it seems totally implausible to me that it is not. Well, yeah, me too. Um, unless um, there is, and we've we've observed this many many times. Um, unless there's a, like a, a, a an influence that's forgotten from history, sure. Um, and I say this every time because it's the most obvious source to me. Um, unless there were, it, it, it was it was comic books, mm -hmm. or it was some medium that has long since been lost and forgotten to history. Sure. Yeah. So you, so you've got some you've got some shared some shared source of influence that results in two things that appear very to be very very similar, but actually were developed independently. That's right. Yeah, yeah it, 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 it does make sense. It's perfectly possible. 
Um, but I mean, I, I still would like people to think about that going forward, that if, if, if you take Darkstar and add the Ark in Space to it. Yeah. Um, and I mean, um, we were talking about, uh, on, on a completely different subject, we were talking about progressive rock quite recently. Mm. Um, and I invited you to listen to the song Pioneers Overseed by Van de Graaff Generator. So between that song and Dark Star and the Ark, you've, you've got a lot of, um, what should we say, post-space age come down, um, sure. where people are beginning to recognise um, that space travel is mostly going to be mind-numbingly boring and will probably result in madness. Yes, uh, mad madness and, 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 a, and a cruel death, effectively. Yeah. And so, I mean, that's definitely a, a cultural thing that was in that, that, that was at large in the air mm. um, I think what we can say is that the the idea of space travel the 1969 idea of space travel um, the Apollo 11 era um, when the revolution still seemed possible has given way to the Apollo 14 era with um, yawn 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 um, I, whenever you talk about disillusionment of the early 70s, you have to say Nixon and Watergate, it's obligatory. Sure. Um, even though I don't happen to think Richard Nixon was a bad man. You know, I, I find it quite hard to criticise um, someone who campaigned so hard for public awareness on cancer and almost single-handedly negotiated, um, a, if not peace, then detente with China. Um, but we're somehow historically obliged to think of Richard Nixon as being a wicked person. Yes. Um, and, you know, by, by the Apollo 14 era, um, then squillions of dollars were being spent so that astronauts could go and fucking play golf on the moon. I mean, is, 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 that, is that what it's come down to, really? Mm -hmm. are, 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 we that, are, are we now that bored with our great adventure? Sure. Yeah, the, 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 what was effectively like a, a massive dick-swinging contest between America and Russia, it seems to me, as well. Um, it was a massive dick-swinging contest. And, um, you know, when, when you've won a dick-swinging contest, what comes afterwards? Brewers droop. Sure. <laughs> um, and... So, I mean, we're into this era of this great disillusionment with, with space travel um, mm. and the fact that it's, it's, it's probably not going to be all that exciting. Do, do, do you think we've emerged from it yet, Doc? Uh, you know, but it seems to me that the, the disillusionment has never really gone away. We've, we've never recaptured the, the glory days of, of the late 60s, have we? Here's the thing. In popular imagination, no. But in reality, absolutely, yes. Um, all of the things that people absolutely take for granted nowadays satellite communications um, the internet gps um all of those are the um the children of the revolutionary space programs of the 1950s and 1960s sure sure or, or is that just um, what they want you uh, to believe doc because we've never actually been to the <laughs> fucking moon we'll get onto that conspiracy 
Actually, we'll get onto that conspiracy in about eight weeks' time. No way! Um, no, a bit longer than eight weeks. Yeah. Probably closer to 13 or 14 weeks. Great, uh, great. Yeah, I mean, the um, once again, we are supposed to like sneer at the space programme now as a, 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 a stupendous loss leader and a stupendous waste of money, um, and the space shuttle really wasn't all that. Mm. Um, and it's just two bilious superpowers belching at each other across a barroom table um ah. but um it's that technology and that competitive spirit and that revolutionary spirit that has enabled a bunch of stuff that make a ton of people's lives easier nowadays of course of course um i'm uh, gonna make i'm gonna i'm gonna jump in and make a point doc if that's all right um of course robert holmes the the, the skill involved in his writing is is is, is with, you know, without question, really, almost without comparison, and I think right in episode one here, we you know we see his craft at work, um, the, the the decision to kind of instantly separate Sarah, Sarah Jane from the group, just ratchets ratchets up this sense of claustrophobia and horror and terror. Um, it's it, it's really scary. It instantly evokes a sense of threat and menace, and then. He's not, he's not done yet, is he? Because then he doubles down on it, um, you know, by putting her in peril with the, you know, with, with, with the loss of oxygen. So, so not only is she, is she lost and alone in this terrifying alien place, now suddenly she's running out of oxygen as well. Just great, great writing, Doc. What do we think? Um, well, I think even more fundamentally, yes, it is. Um, so we're, we're in the fifth episode um, of A New Doctor, yeah. Um, and, uh, I mean, it's not like we didn't know Robert Holmes couldn't be confrontational. Um, but, um, you know, Robert Holmes anticipates your question. So you want to get to know this TARDIS crew, do you? Right, yeah. what I'm going to do is give you a whole entire episode with nothing but these three people in it. And if there's a John Lucarotti influence at work here, then um, it's the fact that you've kind of got a replay of episode one of the Aztecs, where, mm. um, obviously... Barbara goes wandering off by herself, walks through a door, which closes behind her, um, and mm -hmm. then she's separated. So, I mean, that's um, splitting up the TARDIS crew um, as we work more through the Hartnell era um, is something that, that happened at the beginning of almost every adventure. Okay. Um, and um, I think what we've got here is Robert Holmes subverting a John Lucarotti convention. Mm -hmm. So... Um, We've we've got a replay um, of this this sort of plot beat from the Aztecs, where the companion gets separated from the rest of the party. Um, but in the Aztecs, John Lucarotti is a bit of a kind old soul, really. I think lets you off the hook by very quickly establishing that Barbara's all right, okay, um, and she's not in any danger. Um, Robert Holmes subverts that completely, and then puts Sarah into even more danger, and then puts Sarah into even more danger, and then when it turns out she's actually been hibernated and they've got no way to revive her, puts her mm. into even more danger. Mm. Mm. And, um, and you made a good point there, Doctor. It, it hadn't really occurred to me, actually. We don't we don't meet any other character in episode one, do we? We, we don't meet No, we don't no. meet Vira. It, it is just the three of them, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, and um, it's, it's a thing I think they could have made a bit more of 
nod to some fantastically spooky effect. Yeah. Because um, I think it's supposed to be a riff on something like the Marie Celeste, doesn't it? Sure. Uh, yeah, absolutely, yes, yes. The, the, the Marie Celeste or something like the Flying Dutchman, something like that. Yeah. Um, and um, I think it would have worked even better if they'd hung out the suspense even longer that, to all intents and purposes, it is a ghost ship, it has been completely abandoned. Mm. They're trying to work out why. And then the crew start coming back to life. Yeah. Mm. But remind me, Doc, we're, we're, we we see the Wirren before we see another person, don't we? We we, we kind of see the, the husk of the Wirren yes. at, at the end of episode one, don't we? So we see the alien menace before we see the, the human menace, as it were. Well, um, it's quite a long time before we see a friendly human at all. Um, yeah. So uh, you're dead right. The, the doctor opens the, the broom cupboard and That's the it. dead Wirren falls out. Uh-huh. Um, then Vira revives and mm-hmm. understand and... Um, you know, then you get another, you get Robert Holmes subverting another convention here that normally when the Doctor and his friends meet aliens or meet people on a spaceship and the people are hostile, they're hostile for no good reason. On this occasion, of course, Vira's got very good reason to be hostile towards these people who have suddenly turned up on her space station that she's the custodian of mm-hmm. um, and to all intents and purposes have started killing people. That's right, yeah, yeah because, understandably she presumes that they are responsible for, you know, what, what's happened to the, 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 you know, the, the, the crew members that were meant to be in stasis but have unfortunately um, expired. <clears throat> well, yeah, and then um, there's a beautifully underplayed moment um, I can't remember the actual line, but it, it's absolutely gorgeously underplayed by Wendy Williams. Um, when the weight of Vira's survivor guilt comes down on her. Mm-hmm. Um, so after her initial suspicion, um, and then her, she then goes through a, a phase of outrage because she thinks that the doctor and, and his friends are like semi savage survivors from some off world colony. Sure. Um, and if you watch her face, Wendy Williams plays this beautifully as the, the weight of the implications of what she's saying, mm-hmm. that she's the leader of the bunch of people who self-selected themselves to survive and abandon everybody else on Earth to die. Sure. Um, and sure. Um, first of all, she starts basically having a go at these savages for having dared to survive when they weren't supposed to have done. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then... Yeah. You just watch the weight of her survivor guilt come down on her, and it, mm. it, it's it's a fantastically underplayed moment. I mm. love it. Well, the, the, I think the performances of both um, Wendy Williams and I'm um, just looking at now, Kenton Moore as Noah. I, th- I think I think they're great. I really, really do. You know, as kind of supporting roles here. I think I think they really, really carry this. Well, you know, once they're introduced, they they are no slouches in the acting department, in my opinion, Doc. No, and I mean, just every single character, every single person you meet gets a Robert Holmes subversion in the yeah. story. Uh-huh. Um, you get this character called Noah, who is obviously named after the Old Testament prophet as the, mm-hmm. the, the, the man who was selected to, to be the survivor sure. um, after the Holocaust that wiped out the rest of the planet. Mm. Of course, when we actually meet Noah, he turns out to be a really crap leader who sure. makes really bad decisions. Uh-huh. It's one of those things that Robert Holmes does better than almost anybody, um, except Chris Butcher. Mm-hmm. Um, That's uh, image of the Fendal guy, isn't it, Chris Butcher? 
Yeah, and yeah. Robots of Death. Sure. And The Face of Evil. Oh, brilliant, um, yeah. Which is, he um, he writes a backstory for these characters that he doesn't bother, or he leaves it to you to provide the exposition for. So mm -hmm. we, we never get to know a thing about Noah's background. We never get to think, we never get to know a thing about Vira's background. Sure. We never get to know why um, a leader, frankly, is incompetent and useless as that guy. Um, got picked to be the leader of that expedition. Surely, mm -hmm. you know, it, um, it should have been Vira, shouldn't it? Mm -hmm. she should have, she, she's clearly far more competent. Yes, yes. I, I wondered if, if you know, the fact that the, the character is called, it, called Noah. Now, obviously, you know, it, 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 it's called Noah because, you know, the arc in space, it's, you know, the, the, the connection is, is pretty stark. But I found it interesting that, that, that Holmes decided to make that character the nutter, as you were. Now, I know he's not a nutter, you know, b b b d like deliberately, he you know he he becomes like infected and 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 infected and affected, but you know by by the Wirren, and 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 so his behaviour is not rational, and it's also not his fault. I get that, um, but but you know, making the character of Noah the nutter, I wondered if it was Robert Holmes, you know, re really having a, a bit of a swipe at anybody that believes, you know, that that the, the Old Testament is, you know gospel as it were like the word of god the true word of god yeah i think that's distinctly possible yeah um there is a subversive tradition um in christian scholarship mm -hmm. um and in fact noah has the biblical noah has been portrayed on television um mm -hmm. a couple of times like this recently mm -hmm. um as basically a um a, a driven fanatic of questionable sanity Sure. Um, and, and, well, and of course, uh, Darren Aronofsky's uh, movie, of, you know, the, the, the eponymous movie Noah, is in which uh, I think Russell Russell Crowe plays the the, the title character. Um, right. You know, the, the, very very similar. You know, Noah is this driven fanatical, you know, crazed individual that everybody thinks is absolutely bonkers. Um, now, I mean, it's an, it's an Aronofsky movie, so things go pretty fucking off the, off the tracks pretty quickly and, 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 and gets pretty epic um, and, and almost kind of sci-fi in a way. Um, but yeah, but, but, but it, it, certainly, it certainly continues that trope, I would say. Yeah, I mean, is it, is it ever established? Um, I, I remember in the novelization. Um, Vira has a line where uh, she says, "We called him Noah as an amusement." Mm -hmm. um, so presumably that, that that isn't his given name. Sure. Um, I I'm fascinated by the idea that whatever organisational committee set up the Ark in space, mm. um, whether it wasn't a joke at all, because I mean, none of these people show much sign of having a sense of humour. Mm -hmm. You're right. Um, yeah, the faces don't crack very often, do they? No, they don't. Um, and given the task they're expected to undertake, you wouldn't really expect them to now, would you? No, correct. Um, I mean, I find, I find them very, very close to their portrayal um, and how they appear on television. I, I find them very, very close to how I imagine Old Testament matriarchs and patriarchs to be. Mm. You know, mm. they're remote, um, completely subsumed to a higher goal and largely uncaring about the fates of, um, well, in, in, in both cases, um, the people they have allowed to die. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, 
I'm just wondering whether the organizational committee who set up this project didn't decide to call him Noah almost as a sort of belt and braces. Um, you know, well, it, whether or not you believe in the Old Testament, um, it can't do any harm to invoke the spirit of the old legends now, can it? Sure, sure. It, 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 it's, um, an, it's an interesting point, Doc. I think, we, I think we're veering towards... Um, kind of part three kind of subject here, Doc. So should we move on to that? Yes, let's. Commander. You are authorised to use the mind probe. What? No, not the mind probe. Welcome to part three of the show, which we call Not the Mind Probe. This section just talks about other stories that were influenced by or that influenced this story, as well as you know, any kind of political shenanigans that were going on. Um, some details before that, just to inform us on things that were bubbling away in the zeitgeist, just to give us an idea of what was happening in the world. Uh, broadcast dates, we've touched on it already, but just to confirm, 25th of January 1975 to the 15th of February. Um, Significant US film releases, only two really that, that, that I'd heard of anyway. Um, one being Shampoo, which I believe was a, um, a Goldie Horn vehicle, um, <laughs> and The Stepford Wives, which is, what, what would you say that is, Doc? Like a kind of socio political horror. Pretty good. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd call it um, feminist dystopian sci fi. Here we go, lovely. Um, and UK number one songs, nothing as quite as amusing as last week's, which was, of course, Two Little Boys by Rolf Harris. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a pretty strong start. <laughs> I know, too many jokes, basically, yeah. Um, but it's a pretty, we've got three songs uh, this week and a pretty strong opening. We've got Down Down by Status Quo. <laughs> got something called Miss Grace by a band called The Times. Never fucking heard of that. Doc, how about you? No, um, the Times, anyone curious, the Times is spelled T-Y-M-E-S. And thirdly, uh, quite a famous track here as well, uh, January by a band called Pilots. I think that's the one that goes, January, I think it's that one in the duck. Ah, we so we'll be into the, uh, the era of um, smooth FM rock now, won't we?
that's the kind of song that what's the name of those bloody oh those american the mormons the mormon family with the fabulously white teeth <laughs> what are they called the old the Osmonds. The Osmonds. That that's it, that, that kind of shit we're talking about. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I let my bias slip through there, listeners. I apologise. Um, here we I go. Just find, I just find it amusing, and I mean, this this is relevant because it casts forward to the next story as well. Mm. Um, the Mormons, in reality, um, are or historically um, are probably like the the last and best example of the true American pioneer spirit and mm-hmm. the extremely tough survivalists who basically carved a city out of the desert in the middle of nowhere mm-hmm. um, where human beings weren't even supposed to be able to survive. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually the image of the Mormons is summed up to most people by the Osmonds now. Little Jimmy Osmond is terrible, isn't it? You're right. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. Um, go on then, Doc. Any thoughts here? Um, you know, things influenced by the influenced, etc. And and, and 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 what's going on in the world, Doc? That, that that's your that's your bag. So previously, Doctor Who had been kind of um, well. If we scared you, um, we don't necessarily apologise for that. But yeah, we're kind of sorry we're scared. We 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 scared you. Um, this is the first time Doctor Who really gets in your face and grabs you by the lapels and like shouts in your face so that you can feel the droplets of spit coming out of its mouth. Mm-hmm. And Robert Holmes and Philip Pinchcliffe are basically going like, we, fuck you, fuck you. We, we are going to offend you. Sure. And we're going to do this. Um, and so remember, this is, this is pre-punk rock, as most people understand it. We're going to do this by parading lewdly and unapologetically the three biggest taboos in UK culture at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, we're going to write a story which is about mental illness and rape and cancer. Mm-hmm. And I mean, those things are only very, very thinly allegorized within the story now, aren't they? Correct. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of in the same, you, you, you've touched upon alien, you know, um, and you know, you mentioned the word rape there, you know, as with alien, you know, the, 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 you know, the rape, the invasion, the violation, it, it, it's equally possible for this to happen to, you know, a, a male victim as a female victim. Um, and, and perhaps that, that's what makes both of these things so effective. Now, of course, I'm aware before anybody squeals in protest, of course, I'm aware it is possible to rape a man. But of course, you know, it, 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 in reality, it is it is generally women that are the victim of this terrible crime. Whereas here and in Alien, you know, it, it, gender is unimportant. Um, yeah, and um, to sort of focus down even more on the gender politics, as in Alien, the rapist is explicitly female. Sure. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, um, yeah. It's a queen, effectively, isn't it? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it 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 squirts eggs into you. That's um, right. So, I mean, I I don't actually know. <laughs> um, I named these as the, the the three great taboos um, of UK culture. Um, I as as a very small child, um, I watched a polite Sunday morning gathering at my grandparents' house, empty in five minutes flat because someone. Um, used the word cancer. Yeah, but, but I mean, if we think about um, the um, Peter, oh God, Dudley Moore and Peter, what's his name, Doc? Cook. Peter Cook. You know, you know, they're they're, yeah. they're Derek and you know, they're Derek and Clive stuff. A lot of that 
has not dated particularly well, but but even to this day, you know, their riffs on cancer, it's so in your face. It is, it is shocking. There is something about that word that is incredibly potent. You're going to go out laughing, are you? No, man. I'm shitting myself with fucking fear and fucking cancer, which God so kindly provided. <laughs> Without that, we wouldn't have a way to die, would we? <laughs> fucking good of him. Not to torment us with being eternally young and being able to fuck everyone. No, he gave us his great gift of fucking cancer. It's very kind. I wouldn't have thought of that if I'd been created in the universe, would you? Bunging cancer, no. I would have left that out. I mean, the. The equivalent, the only thing that even got close, um, like during my adolescence or adult life, was AIDS. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I, I don't think um, the whole point about AIDS, of course, is that it was rapidly really quite understood that it was a sexually transmitted disease and how it could be prevented. And because the communities involved, um, behaved with remarkable responsibility. Mm-hmm. The spread of it was slowed very, very rapidly. Um, cancer was then, as now, something that is very, very poorly understood um, and which um, just seems to appear for no particularly good reason and kill you. The fact that very, very that as as societies industrialise more and more and more, and tuberculosis is eradicated and smallpox is eradicated, um, and there are still very large numbers of people, including at least one person from everyone's family, um, who've died of shh, shh, don't say that. Yeah, yeah, I know. I was sick. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, and I mean, to to very, very thinly allegorise that, once again, at, at 5.30 on a Saturday afternoon, um, I we started this programme by talking about cultural standards and history and how things have changed. Um, I don't think I can understand, and I certainly can't communicate, what a massive backhander in the face to polite society that would have been. Mm-hmm. And, then, um, and strangely, I, I think if, if something equivalent was shown today, I think it could it, it could be even more controversial, you know, because like the Twitter, you know, the Twitter arty would, would, would be up in arms and, and, and get people into a, a bit of a lather. Well, of course, that wasn't possible at the time. So I do, I do agree with you. It, it was kind of taboo shattering. Um, but strangely, I think maybe it, it would ha- it would have even more impact today. Be interesting. You know a lot more about social media mm. um, than I. I still can't get my head around the idea of social media being the face of society. Mm-hmm. Um, the 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 society which promulgated the taboos against talking about rape and mental illness and cancer. Um, that was literally the face of society. Sure. If you mentioned those subjects, um, I, I mean, it's um, it's up there with um, Jamie Thingamy defacing the picture of the Queen for the, the cover of the Sex Pistols single. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, so we'll, we'll, we'll come to the third of the taboos, and I think this is the one that, um, has absolutely not lessened as a taboo, mm. um, which is mental illness, mm-hmm. or um, as people called it then, madness or insanity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We haven't dealt with what you could really call mental illness um, in Doctor Who up until this point. In the Sensorites, um, it turns out that John the Spaceman 
um, isn't actually insane at all, um, but the, the Sensorites have been needling him with the telepathic powers, and as soon as they stop, um, then, then uh, he, 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 just, he just gets better. Yes. Um, we meet lots of mad scientists. Um, what's the story, Doc? Sorry to interrupt. What, what, what's the story where, because I feel it's a John Pertwee story, what's the story where the guy is in a cell of some description and he's drawing cave paintings on the wall? That's the Silurians. That's the Silurians. Of course it is. Yeah. Oh, good Lord, yeah, of course, last week's, last week's story. That, that's why it's fresh in my mind, I suppose. It, is, it, is that not like touching on mental illness? Um, so we get lots of things like that, but it, it's um, it's it's always cussed the aliens. Maybe yeah, because uh, of it, this thing. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, so uh-huh. I mean, in, in in the mind of evil, it's because of the Keller machine. Sure. Um, and um, I mean, you could make a really really good case for the first really close up and tragic portrait of mental illness being poor Mike Yates. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, who is a very idealistic man um, who becomes disenchanted with the military and falls into and is impressionable enough to fall under the uh, uh, under the influence of um, some radical environmentalists um, and nearly brings about the end of the world. This is um, invasion of the dinosaurs, I, right? Well, it's the whole arc mm. from. Um, I think you can trace it back to the Three Doctors. Ah. Um, I was going to say Green Death because, onwards. Well, yeah, then the Green Death, yeah, um, then Invasion of the Dinosaurs, and then it finishes up in Planet of the Spiders, where, sure. um, uh, I mean, um, we, we certainly don't know what the hell Mike is going to make with the rest of his life. He's, mm. he's, he's found peace of sorts by studying Buddhism. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, there's certainly no clue what he's ever going to do for a stable income or housing mm-hmm. for the rest of his life. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I, I think that's the closest you ever get. And, it, and it, it's, it's, I won't say it's soft pedal, but it's, it's not pushed front and centre um, because Malcolm Hulk is far too much of a clever and sensitive writer to actually foreground something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, what, what we've got here um, in episode three of The Ark in Space um, of a man coming to pieces um, for three separate reasons. Um, He's the most obvious one is because he's been infected by the Wirren. Um, I don't think that's the main reason um, that Noah very, very visibly has a nervous breakdown um, mm-hmm. when he confronts the Doctor and Vira. Um, and I think that's, um, I think it's brought about by his response to his survivor guilt. And I think it's his survivor guilt which motivates him to retain enough of his humanity to lead the Wirren swarm out into space sure. at the end of episode four. Sure. Um, yeah. I don't think, it, I, I don't think it's heroism. I don't think it's the spirit of man. I think that I, I, I think Noah is suicidal and he can't live with himself. And that's how I think the story ends. On, that's great. It's, it, 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 it's an incredibly bleak note. Yeah, that, 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 that's absolutely great, Doc. Um, a couple of um, influences that I want to, to bring about to, to, to bring up we, obviously we, 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 we've talked about alien as being a, an obvious one that I think there's a couple of moments a couple of things that we can talk about in Trek that may have been influenced by this story 
there's a there's a fantastic um, Deep Space Nine story called Civil Defense. I don't know if you remember this. Well, I'm sure you remember the episode, Doc, but maybe not from the title. Um, it's the one where as somehow I, I can't remember the MacGuffin, but somehow um, they trigger the like the crew of Deep Space Nine trigger um, an, an old Cardassian booby trap, basically. So that as the Cardassians were leaving the station, forced off the station, they they they, they kind of they rigged up several booby traps that once yes, activated. Yes, I do remember. Do you remember this one? Yeah. Um, and and and, and there, you know there's a particular sequence in this story which is so reminiscent of some, of, of what's happening in civil defence. I I find it difficult to believe it's a coincidence. It's specifically when you've got like the the, the, the you know the, the the laser booby trap here. Kind of shooting at, at, at the doctor and Harry, and I think Sarah's there as well, maybe. Um, and they're hiding behind the table, and Harry uses the cricket ball. Um, yes, I mean, it, it, it is almost identical to what, what happens at, at one particular moment in civil defense. I find it, I find it difficult to believe that the, the writers hadn't watched this. I think there's a fairly widely acknowledged influence of Doctor Who on Star Trek, sure, sure, uh, or on um, next gen onwards Star yeah. Trek. Uh, yeah. I don't think anyone even bothers denying that nowadays. Well, that's good. Yeah, that's good. I, I've got to say, you, you, the, 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 Harry in, in that scene is absolutely great, and the, and and he's not the only time that Harry's kind of really, really used in a really entertaining way. Like the polishing the cricket ball, it's just funny, isn't it? It's just funny. Um, <clears throat> and you know, the, the, there's another. I think there's another moment where Harry really makes me laugh. It, it, it's when Noah's gone on one of his kind of. Bizarre rants. He, he's fully under the thrall of the Wirren at this point, and um, you know, I think the Doctor and Sarah, maybe, maybe, maybe Vera, Vera or Vira, I, can, I can't remember. Vira, I think, are listening uh, to him. To him, obviously, quite, quite mad by this point. Um, and Harry just kind of listens, and, and just in this wonderfully understated amusing way just say something like you know that all that that, that chap sounds like is in quite a bad way you know it's just absolutely <laughs> it's wonderfully delivered um yeah I, I do like harry i'll tell you some reasons why i love harry yeah um like first of all because he's a companion who almost always gets completely ignored sure um and honestly since since his job is to Sarah's job is to support the Doctor and Harry's job is to support Sarah. And that, mm -hmm. that's that's why he's there. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing wrong with that. If we think about the John Lucarotti connection again, John Lucarotti will be, and we'll, we'll get to Marco Polo quite soon, and John Lucarotti will be sort of well-remembered for writing great parts for Ian. Mm -hmm. um, so when, when we get to the Aztecs and roughly the TARDIS crew gets split up early on and each of the characters has their own personal journey through a different aspect of Aztec culture. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to talk about this too much because we'll get onto it really quite soon. But um, I'm going to posit that maybe once again, under the nurturing influence of Robert Holmes, what you have here is um, not in a nasty, mocking way, but Harry is kind of the anti-Ian. Now, sure. Ian is a sensible, rational man who is constantly trying to make sense of the bizarreness he sees around him. Um, in terms of things he understands. And you made an excellent analogy a couple of weeks ago, and you said this is um, a method that's that's used in teacher training. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes, um, uh, constructivism I was talking about. Yeah. So where you 
in order to explain something new to your students, you start with little building blocks of things that's that right. they can recognise. That's right. Things they already know, so that so, so they basically don't get scared. Yeah. So Harry, being uh, Ian, being a school teacher, um, will constantly try to explain to himself and to the audience, partly to keep himself sane, and partly to try to understand it in terms of the like university level no pre-university level physics that, that that he's been taught there's a great bit in the keys of marinus where he, he's he's trying to back engineer how force field works mm -hmm. and of course he gets it wrong but the thinking process and the the methodology by which he uses to try to solve problems is perfectly sound yeah and i love the fact that john lucarotti and other people give ian a payoff for the fact that he attempts to use rush um, he doesn't always succeed and he, he isn't always right but sometimes he's right and i, I love the fact that given that payoff um harry um is a a naval medic um and it's not beyond the, the, the bounds of possibility that um he would have been attached to the royal marines at some point or other so basically in the film when the landmine goes off and someone goes down and they shout medic mm -hmm. um like uh, Har uh, harry's that guy yeah Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things Harry will have had to have done is given comfort and succor to badly wounded and people who are either going to die soon or spend the rest of their lives in a wheelchair. Sure. Um, Harry will have had to have done that. Um, and I always thought that line, that chap sounds in quite a bad way. Mm. Um, you know, you, you can imagine like Harry in the back of a Western Wessex coming out of a firefight in Northern Ireland, um, trying to stuff someone's guts back into his belly. Sure, yeah. Um, yes. And don't worry, old chap, you're in a bit of a bad way now, but we'll soon have you fixed up. That's it, yes, that's right, yes. You, you, you know, we'll have you back in, you know, we'll, we'll have you back with a cup of tea and a couple of biscuits and yes. you'll be absolutely fine. Once again, it's, it's something I love about kind of the 60s, 70s era of Doctor Who, mm. that they, um, they never forget that the characters they're writing are actually characters and they, they have lives outside, they've had lives and experiences outside of Doctor Who. Sure. Yeah, I like your point, Duck. I like your point a lot. The second thing I wanted to mention regarding uh, Trek um, <clears throat> was <clears throat> Noah's breakdown, you know, as, as, as he slowly kind of, you know, comes under the influence of the Wirren and, and, and kind of loses himself to, the, you know, to their collective effectively. Um, mm -hmm. His confusion with the pronouns, you know, where, where it's like you, we, they, and, and he kind of gets, he, he can't quite grasp it, can he? You know, he can't grasp which pronoun to use correctly. I, um, I know this could, I know this couldn't possibly be um, intentional, uh, but there's some proto-identity politics going yeah, on well, there. there, isn't I, there? Mean, I mean, pro, you know, of course, any, any, any kind of uh, kind of unusual usage of pronouns brings that to mind. You know, in 2021. Um, yeah. But you know, discounting the, the, the you know identity politics, it, to me, just kind of really almost like proto Borg thinking here. Um, you know, the, and surely the Borg were also kind of modelled on insect hive mentality. Um, so again, you know, it, is it is it the fact that both the Wirren and the Borg come from the like, you know like the same source of inspiration or? Or were the Borg themselves influenced by the Wirren? You see what I mean? Um, yeah. So this is also very complicated. For reasons that I don't understand, um, 
critics in the 1950s through the 1970s and even onwards wanted to conflate um, the use of the pronoun we and hive thinking and, well, I suppose because of collectivism. Um, and they wanted to um, deprecatingly associate it to Soviet culture. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how this mistake ever got distributed widely because it, it would be easy enough to check up. It was widely believed in the 1970s that there was no conjugation for I in mm-hmm. Russian. Sure. Um, that that, um, that uh, everything was conjugated as we. Okay. Um, that is not true. And um, sure, there were plenty of people um, in the UK or the US who spoke Russian, who I'm sure could have put those people straight in a second. I'm sure they did. I'm sure they did, Doc, and, and, and they chose to ignore that because it didn't quite fit their narrative. Yeah. Um, so... Um, one is apparently expected to observe some parallel or every time you see a collective society behaving badly um, in science fiction from the 50s through to the 70s, one is supposed to observe a critic of communism in it. Um, Mm -hmm. Don't subscribe to that thinking myself. Um, I I think it's distinctly possible. I, I, I think it's definite that Rick Berman et al. Um, had seen most of Doctor Who. Yeah. The insect species which the Wirren are derived from in real life, um, and I think they're called the Yemenese wasps, um, which are wasps that really actually do inject eggs into live spiders. And um, as an extra, like, horrifyingly gruesome detail, the astars, the, the wasp grubs, um, are apparently capable of avoiding the vital organs of the spider as they eat it, so as to not kill the spider before it's before it's absolutely necessary. Sure. Yes. So I presume, therefore, that the the spider kind of starts to heal itself, and 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 thus provides more sustenance. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely ghastly. Um, absolutely ghastly. Yeah. Um. Uh, but those. Those wasps are not um, social insects. They, they, mm. they, they don't have a... a um, so, obviously, what we're drawing on here is um, social insects, um, such as ants. Yeah, bees and, and ants, we're thinking, aren't we? Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I actually... In, in Star Trek, I actually didn't like it when they made that connection um, far more cock-obvious than, than, than they than they needed to have done by introducing the concept of the Borg Queen. Sure, yeah. I think you're not the only one to make that complaint, Doc. Well, I mean, the the strength and terror of the Borg lies in the fact that it doesn't uh, it doesn't matter how many of them you actually kill as long as the consciousness survives. That's right. Um, and presume, presumably... Presumably the Borg consciousness can survive if even one Borg or even one part of one Borg computer survives. Mm-hmm. Um, and as soon as it finds a, a, a means of assimilating again, it'll start assimilating and the whole culture can regrow itself. Sure. Which is obviously nothing more than a reiteration of, I think, probably Voltaire's statement that, you know, you, you can um, you can kill a person, uh, you can kill their family or their town or their whole country, but you can never kill an idea. Um, so... As, as, as long as this concept of Borg consciousness survives, in the same way as for as long as one ant egg survives, yeah, um, then the, 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 the whole entire society and the whole entire culture can, can regrow itself. 
in the ark in space, this is contrasted starkly against human society, which is shown within the story to actually have a very, very slender chance of survival. Mm-hmm. We get to the end of episode four, and even though the, um, the humans have survived in hibernation, and even though the Wirren menace has been um, diffused, um, the humans are actually still monstrously fucked because their teleport doesn't work. Yes. And obviously what that's going to do, and I need to stop talking about this pretty soon because it'll spoil the next story for us. It leads into one of Robert Holmes's most monumental pieces of cynicism ever. Um, yes. Because in the next story, he has Bob Baker and Dave Martin just piss on the arc in space from a great height. Yes, um, and just basically go, and just basically go, all your people, all your efforts, all your self-importance, you weren't worth shit. <laughs> yeah, but, and you, and again, that ties into the Alien franchise, doesn't it? Because of course, Alien Three does exactly the same thing to everything that happens in Aliens. Um, Precisely, I'd go, never even thought of that. How about that, um, Doc? I think we're running a bit long. Let's move on to part four. Overweight a powder museum piece. Welcome to part four of the show, which we call Overweight Underpowered Muse- Museum Piece. Um, here we're going to talk about the production, the costume, effects, direction, etc. Over my lifetime, I have <laughs> facilitated so much on my opinions of the production and the direction of the acting on the story. The first time I saw it, I hated it. I thought it looked like crap. And the still... Sorry, Doc. Did, did you think it looked yeah. like crap because of that kind of, you know, the horrendous... You know, far too bright lighting. We, we, I mean, it, I mean, it's bad here. Of course, it's going to get even worse in about three stories time. But, but do you think that? Was, <laughs> do you think that was your big problem with 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 the you know with, with the appearance? Because because it is for me. You know, I, I really really love this story, Doc. But but my God, turn the fucking lights down. What what are you thinking? Um, it doesn't help, does it? Um, <clears throat> I mean the. What's supposed to be the the supreme moment of body horror, which is when you see the final transformation of Noah into the Wirren right at the end of episode three. Oh, yes. Um, is, um, it, it's, it's still a candidate for the one of, one of the most lamentably executed, mm-hmm. quote-unquote, special effects in the history sure. of... It, it's, um, I, I mean, it, it comes close to robbing that scene and the implications of that scene of any power whatsoever. Yes, well, because the lights are so bright, you can clearly see that it is, you know, it is a man inside a sleeping bag that has been wrapped in bubble wrap and painted green. Now, the bubble wrap doesn't bother me so much. Mm. Um, I don't know this. I think bubble wrap would have looked pretty fucking weird to an audience. I, I, I don't know how... The first piece of bubble wrap I remember seeing was when my mom got her first pocket calculator. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to say it was 1983. Sure. And it came out of the box. And the pocket calculator was interesting enough, but I could already do basic maths. But the bubble wrap was far more interesting for me. Yeah. I think that was the first time I actually saw that stuff close up. And I think it would have looked pretty fucking freaky. By coincidence, you know, as I was re-watching this story... Um, you know, in, in readiness for, for for this episode, I watched um, like one of the DVD extras, and <clears throat> it, it was one of the special effects guys, and, and he was talking about how they, you know, they got this new material. It didn't even, 
according to him, it didn't even have a name. You know, he, he said we call it bubble wrap now. At the time, we did not know what it was. We just knew it looked cool as fuck, basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, I'm, I'm perfectly willing to go along with that. Yeah. The effect I'm referring to is, is the one right at the end of episode three. Um, and it's it's supposed to be the final transformation of Noah into the Wirren, mm. um, except it's obviously the same Wirren costume that we've already seen in episode one. Mm -hmm. And they really badly composite, or CSO, um, Kenton Moore's face over the Wirren's face. And then oh, yes, I, I remember. I remember this now, now that you've described it's, it. Yes, it did. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I confused it with that with that with that sequence where he's kind of shuffling along the along the metal metallic floor. Yeah, um, the scene where um, Noah pulls his uh, mutating arm um, out of his um, out of the inside of his tunic, um, mm. I think is astonishingly effective in its crudeness. Here's my uh, here's I mean, my note doc. Here's my note doc about that exact moment. Noah's disfigured hand is horrible to look at. A great effect, just using bubble wrap painted green. It's great. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it's. Um, you've seen Blood Feast, haven't you? Uh, I, I, I certainly have. Yeah, remind me. Well, uh, Gordon Herschel Lewis film from, I believe, the oh, year yes. 1960. Uh -huh. um, and, I mean, there is. Um, to say there is nothing subtle or even good about the special effects um, in that film isn't even coming close to it. But. Mm. The, the camera leers at them. and There's no other word for it. Um, it drools over them and leers at them in such a positively pornographic way. It, it's nauseating and unsettling in a way that the gore effects in almost any other film don't really come close to. And this is kind of like that. It, it's, um, it, it just looks so crude. And it's got... It's such a childish attempt to horrify you um, that it succeeds because of that and not in spite of it. And, you know, it's the same way that trashy old punk rock records still sound shocking in a way that beautifully produced much, quote-unquote, better records in the 1990s don't. Um, there's, and it, it's, it's another reason that I think uh, this, this, this story is a, an early skirmish in the punk rock wars. Um, there are places where it uses its crudity to its advantage, and there are places where it can't use its crudity to to, to its advantage, and it just looks crude. Mm, mm. Um, I, I can't let a mention of um, Herschel Gordon Lewis pass without recommending everybody go and check out the 1972 splatter classic, The Gore Gore Girls. It's absolutely awesome. <laughs> 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 what a reference. Even I haven't seen that one. It's gr absolutely great. Yeah, there's some some really really like despicably horrible stuff going on in that it's excellent <laughs> yeah so i think what we can say is that uh, mr bennett is far more of an actor's director than a mm. visual director because um, i think i think he gets really good performances out of everybody totally agree totally agree um talking of special effects you know the the effect for the space station itself the nerva beacon um yeah is it inflatable? Is it, is it is an inflate? Is it a balloon? Because it really, really looks like an inflatable thing. It really does look like it. Really, really does look like like one. Um, I don't think it is. I yeah. think it's. Um, I think it's another case, and we'll see this a lot when we get to Terror of the Zygons. Mm. Um, 
it's a great visual stylist, a, 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 a guy who learned how to be a visual stylist in the 60s in the era of black and white, mm-hmm. not coming to terms with colour, not coming to terms with lighting for colour, and definitely not coming to terms with how to use CSO. Sure. Um, you know, I mean, we'll, in due course, we'll get around Terror of the Zygons. Oh, yes. And there are some scenes in that. Um, and you end up thinking, that's Douglas Canfield, really. Mm-hmm. That, that's, mm-hmm. that's the guy who directed the invasion. Yes. Mm-hmm. Are you serious? Yeah. There are certain directors who just never quite made it quite successfully into colour, I don't sure. think. They, they, they just didn't make the transition. Um, the, there are certain techniques that certain people working in colour could grasp. Um, the early, the, the directors who use colour best, in my opinion, are not even quote-unquote very good directors. I absolutely adore per, uh, Paul Bernard. Mm-hmm. Um, who did Day of the Daleks and Frontier in Space and okay. The Time Monster. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, if someone wants to try and convince me that Paul Bernard was not spending his off hours in Soho watching Jess Franco films, mm-hmm. I uh-huh. would quite simply not. Just because um, every single soft porn Euro trash riff you can think of ends up um, in the Paul Bernard Arsenal, like the whip pans, the crash zooms, the blurs in and out. Yeah. Um, yeah. The hazy soft focus, um, the panties. Mm. Um, yeah, the, 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 well, the, I mean, the only thing that's missing are, are the gloriously hairy pussies, aren't they, Doc? Um, and the um, and, and lesbian vampires. <laughs> Yeah, you know, if anybody who doesn't know what we're banging on about, it's stuff like, um, what do you say, Doc? Like Zombie Lake, Vampiros Lesbos, Oasis of the Zombies. Hit me with some more titles, Doc, for people. Oh, um, really, really tasteful, um, you know, family friendly sounding fair, like She Killed in Ecstasy. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> and uh, Eugenie, uh, Eugenie de Sade. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, great. Uh, I mean, proper, real, real, real Euro trash. Absolutely marvellous. Me and the Doc love it. Uh, absolutely. Um, yeah. And all of that stuff um, ends up in um, some of the best work of some of the best early colour directors. Mm. Um, and even though we're sort of a good five years into the era of BBC colour, um, there are some people who are still playing catch-up. And I think there are bits where... Uh, Mr. Bennett looks as though he's not even interested in playing catch-up. Um, like, he's going to do his thing. He's going to concentrate on directing actors. And all of this colour video stuff can, can, can like, he, he can't even be bothered with it. I believe, um, you know, just, just from reading articles on the subject, that there's a similar problem with the transition from kind of silent movies to the talkies, wasn't there? You know, some people, you know, some directors... And even some actors, you know, could, could handle it, and some just some just could not make that make that move. I get the impression that there was an almost complete turnaround in personnel in filmmaking. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, between uh, between sound and like almost nobody made it over. Um, the, there were people who were international megastars of the silent era who disappeared off the face of the earth when sure. when sound became commonplace. Yes, but I can imagine, you know, you know, maybe they're, you know, look very handsome or handsome stars and and, and beautiful star starlets. But you know, if they, if they spoke with a black country accent, they, you know, they they're going to make it in the talk, is aren't they? 
Um, no, I mean, uh, the most, uh, so Rudolph Valentino obviously didn't even survive into the era of sound film. Um, yeah. As usual, it was the woman who suffered the most. Sure. Um, so, I mean, Clara Bowen, Louise Brooks, and the, uh, I mean, the world straddling, world dominating megastars of silent cinema. Um, I don't think many of them made it very successfully into um, the sound era. Sure. Mm-hmm. We've got to be coming to the end of our time now, as you know. As you know, we you know we kind of try to aim for an hour and a half ish, don't we? Unless it's like a special occasion. Um, any final thoughts here before we before we wrap this up? Um, I started by saying this is where the Tom Baker era arrives. Yeah. I'm not convinced it has arrived yet. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not convinced that it arrives actually until Genesis of the Daleks. Mm, okay, um, so that's two stories hence. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're, we're halfway there. Um, so, and when we get to Genesis of the Daleks, um, then I hope to be able to talk you through what I consider to be the final few steps or the final things that need to be set in place before we can be truly said to be in the Tom Baker era. Very good, Doc. Very good. I look forward to that. For me, you know, I really, really like this story. It's one of, it is one of my, it's one of my favourites. I think it is, I think it's the body horror that kind of tips it over for me. Um, you know, the, the, that Noah sequence with like the, the, the hideous disfigured hand, um, the, the, the design of the Wirren. You know, um, as clumsy as it as, as it looks, I suppose, in, in that harsh lighting, I still think it's a, a valiant effort on the, you know on the part of the actual people that made like the costume designers that you know they they tried their best and they were let down by the by the fucking lighting director basically. Um, yes. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, you'd, I'd, I love all of the interplay between our three heroes. I think you know Tommy's astonishingly confident considering this is only his second story. Um, Harry gets some real moments to shine. Sarah, you know, she, she, Sarah Jane, you know, she, oh, you, you know, she, I mean, she she can play a damsel in distress with, with the with the best of them. I, I would I would argue. Yep, really, really strong stuff, Doc. I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, I think we're done, aren't we, Doc? I think we are. Yeah. Uh, don't forget, guys. You can well, contact us. Oh, sorry. Go on, Doc. Well, I was going to say. Um, We'll be back soon, and I've actually got to grip my teeth quite a bit to get through the next story. <laughs> Don't forget, guys, you can contact us via email on differentdocsos at gmail.com, or you can hit us up on Twitter at sosdifferent. Um, and as the doc just mentioned, next time we will be talking, of course, about a different story, and that will be Peter Davison's second story, which is, of course, Four to Doomsday. Doc? If your intestinal fortitude is up to it, I'll see you then. See you later. Take care.